I wonder if, uh, if this morning was very routine for you. We are creatures of habit, aren't we? We like our routines. We like waking up a certain way. We like waking up at a certain time. Maybe we like our coffee or our breakfast a certain way and at a certain time. Maybe your family has learned their lesson not to speak to you until you have caffeinated yourself. I don't know what your routine is, but we all have them to some degree, don't we? And Sunday, the Lord's Day, can be no different. I wonder how many Lord's Days we've woken up with that same sort of routine feeling. Maybe we were tired, we didn't much feel like going to the gathering, but we got ourselves ready anyways because we knew we needed to go. And then when the service began, well, nothing extravagant happened. It didn't seem like anything major was going on. The singing was decent, the sermon was so-so, and when we all left, no one seemed all that affected by anything that took place. I wonder if that describes any of our Sundays. On the one hand, uh, there's value in the normal week-in, week-out means of grace that the Lord has given to us. And by means of grace, I mean the various ways that the Lord has given us to grow in grace, like gathering with his people on the Lord's day to worship him. That is a means of grace. There's value in the week in and week out means of grace, even if it seems ordinary or routine. You might think of it a little bit like a workout in some ways. You know, not every workout seems especially riveting or especially effective all by itself, but it's the sum total of a bunch of workouts over time that bring the benefits, right? In many ways, I think that's how our sanctification works. Sure, the Lord can just take us a massive leap forward when he wants to, and those times are wonderful, but most of the time, I think our Christian journey is just a journey of baby steps. Do you find that to be the case? Just a journey of baby steps, but there's good that's happening in the baby steps. You take enough baby steps, and then you look back, and you realize how far you've actually come. Now, having said all of that, there's also a bad kind of normal or routine, I would say. It could be that we're missing beauty that's right in front of our noses. In other words, I wonder if sometimes what we interpret as normal or ordinary about the weekend, week out gatherings is actually more extraordinary than we even realize. Could it be that we're missing beauty that's right in front of our noses because we're just so used to it? I think that's very possible. 
And the answer is not, well, let's take a break from going to church because it's becoming too routine for me. Of course not. The answer is never found in sinning like that. The answer instead is to ask the Lord for his help. Ask him for his help to help us see what's actually in front of us. To pray that the Lord would recalibrate our minds and our hearts to see the beauty and the power in the week in and week out. Now, you'll see hopefully where that's relevant in just a minute, but today we're going to look at a passage in the book of Mark that records a very unusual Sabbath day gathering in the year 30 A.D., roughly, in the town of Capernaum. And I do hope as we look at it together, I hope it will become clear about how all of what I just said leading up to this is related to what's recorded here. Okay, so if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Mark 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 21. By the way, we're on this verse not just because I picked it, but because we have made it up to this verse in our preaching series. We're going verse by verse through the book of Mark. Today we're up to the 21st verse. We'll read... um, Verses 21 all the way to 34 today, okay? Let's read together. You follow along as I read it. The Bible says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, he being Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. And not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Amen. We'll stop there for, the, for today. Now, 
before we begin to try to draw out a little bit from this passage, I'd like to paraphrase this section of Scripture for you with a little different perspective, okay? Let me read an account of these events in the form of a letter that Christopher Ashe has written. Christopher Ashe is a Christian writer and teacher in Cambridge, England, and I was introduced to him, uh, introduced to his writing through my dad and his commentary on the book of Job. It's wonderful, helpful commentary that Mr. Ashe wrote. But here's a fictional letter that he wrote based on these events in Mark's gospel that just gives us a little bit of perspective, okay? It's from a young man named James from Capernaum to his uncle Benjamin, dated A.D. 30. Dear Uncle Ben, thank you for the Olympic Games stickers and the cool battering ram. They're awesome. Lots of love. Crossed out. Dad says this letter isn't long enough yet, so I'll tell you what happened at synagogue last Saturday. As you know, I think synagogue is really boring. The sermon is usually from some dry-as-dust rabbi, and it generally starts like this. I want today to discourse about the Talmudic and Tehranic teachings concerning aspects of Sabbath observance, but in particular the recent scroll by Rabbi Hillel entitled, Symbolic, mythological, and eschatological reflections on the dietary laws with footnotes about the recent epidemic of mad pig disease. On the one hand, Rabbi Hillel takes the view that blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, Rabbi Ben Shirak is of the opinion, don't ask me how it ends, Uncle Ben, because I drop off to sleep about then. Honestly, I wish I never had to go into another synagogue. Last Saturday was different. The preacher was some sort of traveling teacher from a town in the hills. Hasn't even been to university, they said. We wondered why they'd ask him to preach. But when he started, he had a sort of quiet authority, which was just riveting. He didn't talk about silly little things. He talked about the really important questions. He didn't seem to need to quote lots of boring old rabbis to support him. He talked about heaven as though he'd been there. He talked about God as though he was a friend of his. He said, do you want to know what God is like? Well, listen carefully if you've got ears, because I'm going to tell you. We've never heard anything like it. Someone speaking about God with authority like that. And then suddenly, right in the middle of his sermon, some madman in the third row began shouting at him. Wild, strange shouting. What have you got to do with us, Jesus from Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? It was horrible, really frightening. We all wondered what the preacher would do. Mom said it was like a test of his authority. It's all very well teaching with authority, she said, but did he have real authority to defeat evil in a man's life? Well, as we looked, this Jesus turned to the madman with a very strong look. It was the sort of look you can't easily forget. It was the look of controlled anger and tremendous power. 
He didn't touch him. He just spoke very sternly. Be quiet. Come out of him. And do you know what happened? The man shook from head to foot. Gave a horrible shriek. And after that became quiet and normal. Well, I tell you, we were just amazed. And then this Jesus went to the home of his friends, Simon and Andrew. There was some story of him healing Simon's mother-in-law. Yes, I know, Uncle Ben, that you don't always think it's a favor to heal someone's mother-in-law, but there we are. He did. And then after the Sabbath ended at sunset, when the people were allowed to carry burdens, it seemed like the whole town was carrying out their sick to his door. And he healed loads of them. We've been talking about it ever since. It's worth a few boring synagogues for a day like that. I'll write again soon. Love, James. I love that perspective. This was certainly a Sabbath to remember, wasn't it? Not just for little kids who might have been there, but for everyone there. And as we think about, for just a few minutes, what happened on this particular Sabbath some 2,000 years ago in Capernaum, we won't be able to talk about every aspect of this passage. There's so much here, but I want to point out just two things that stand out. Here's the first. There was a people in great need. There was a people in great need. I think my slide did not advance, if, if you don't mind advancing it for me. There was a people in great need. Did you notice all the people in this passage that were in need? First, there's the demonized man. It says he has an unclean spirit, a demon. And interestingly, of all places, where is this man? He's in the synagogue. He's in church. In case anybody's wondering, there's needy people in church. Can you say amen to that? <laughs> there's messed up people in church. There's people who are going through things that none of us have a clue about except for them. I just described all of us in a way. The church is not a place for perfect people. I don't know who said it first, but I like the statement that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. In other words, it's not where perfect people go to put themselves up on display for everybody to look at and admire. It's where needy Broken people go to receive the healing balm of God's word. Jesus didn't say he came to seek the ones who had it all together, did he? He said he came to seek and save the lost. And he didn't say he came to help the ones who were doing pretty well by themselves. And said he, said he came to heal the sick. It's the sick who needed a physician, he said. And this man in the synagogue, he certainly needed Jesus, didn't he? There was no human remedy for what this man had. The only remedy was divine. And lo and behold, who happened to be teaching 
in that particular synagogue on that particular day, a divine man, the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Somebody had lined up this speaking engagement with Jesus, and they might have said, Rabbi, teacher, after the reading of the scroll from the law and the prophets, would you preach? He said, yes. And what a time for that demon-oppressed man to be there. And it wasn't just the demonized man that was in need. We see another group of people in need here too. The sick. Simon's mother-in-law was one of them. Just a very quick side note. Simon Peter was married. It's his wife's mother who had the fever here. The leading apostle, Simon Peter, was himself Married. We're not going to dwell on that point. That's not at all the main point of this passage, but it's worth mentioning because there are some who would claim that marriage should not be entered into if you're a spiritual leader like a priest or something. And, of course, Paul does point out in 1 Corinthians 7 the, the advantages spiritually of being single, and there is advantages to that. But the point still remains that the leading apostle, the apostle Peter, was married. Marriage is a gift from God, and we should not forbid to marry. 1 Timothy 4, 3 is helpful there if you want to write it down. Hebrews 13, 4 is also helpful there. End of the little side note there. Back to Peter's mother-in-law. She had a fever, and I found out in my study that fevers in that day, they were actually considered a sickness in themselves rather than a symptom of something else. And often people thought that it was the result of either demonic activity or punishment directly from God. And they would get some of that from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where God would give people a fever and judgment in some cases. And there's even a passage in one of the later rabbis that said this. It's very interesting. Just to kind of give you a feel of what they thought about fevers. He said, this rabbi said, greater is the miracle wrought for the sick than for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Do you remember who those guys were? They were renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by the Babylonians. Daniel 3 records how they were thrown into a fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar because they refused to bow down to this idolatrous image that he had set up. So the rabbi says in the quote, I'll I'll substitute their well-known names in the quote, greater is the miracle wrought for the sick than for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego concerned a fire kindled by man, which all can extinguish, while that of a sick person is in connection with a heavenly fire. And who can extinguish that? It's an interesting quote. The implication, of course, being only God can extinguish a fever, especially if it's a result of some kind of sin or demonic activity like they believed. 
And we don't know what the background of this woman's fever was or how she came to get it at all. The scripture doesn't tell us, but we just know Peter's mother-in-law had one and she's in need of healing. And not only her, but verses 34 to, or excuse me, 32 to 34, they describe a ton of other people who were in need of healing. People who were demonized, as well as people who had all kind of diseases, sicknesses, boatloads of needy people. Here was a people in great need. Let's step back and think about that generally for a second. Jesus came into a very needy world, didn't he? A very needy world. In fact, that is why Jesus came. Because we needed help. We needed a lot of help. And God sent the Lord Jesus in pity and mercy. Do you consider yourself to be in a place of need before God? There is a disease, you know, that's common to every man, and it's 100% fatal. It's worse than COVID-19. It's worse than any pandemic that's ever been known to man. We know what it is. It's a pandemic of sin. Sin has affected every single part of us, and there is no human cure. By default, also, we are under the same spiritual power that this demon-oppressed man was under, the power of Satan. Ephesians 2 talks about all of us who were dead in sin and how we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. John 12, 31 refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And 2 Corinthians 4, 3 talks about the gospel being veiled to those who are perishing. That's everyone, everybody by default, by the way. And then it says why. It says, in their case, the God of this world, little g God, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The, power of, the powers of darkness blind men and women and boys and girls to the glories of Christ. Satan and his demons try to prevent people from seeing Jesus as he is. They know who he is. James 2.19 tells us that demons believe in God and they shudder. They know exactly who Jesus is, but they sure don't want others to see it. And this man in Mark 1, he was prevented by this unclean spirit from living to the glory of God because he was oppressed by an, an evil spirit. He wasn't himself. He wasn't who God created him to be. And just, I guess what I'm saying by way of application to us today is we're no better off than he was without Christ. Because we're, without Christ, we're under the control of Satan. 
And in the same vein, without Christ, it's like we're laid up in the bed with a deadly fever. With no human cure. Got all sorts of sicknesses, maladies, diseases. No one can help us, humanly speaking. We're done for, right? Well, thankfully, there's more to the story. The second point. There was a Savior with great authority. Oh, man. There was a Savior with great authority. Did you notice what they said about Jesus when he taught in the synagogue? He comes there to teach. And when he does, here's their reaction. Verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And the word astonished in the original language literally means Filled with amazement to the point where you are overwhelmed is what the word means. They were dumbfounded. They were astounded. They were amazed. They'd never heard anything like this before. And then down in verse 27, it says again, And they were all amazed. Different Greek word, but similar meaning. They were astounded so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They didn't have a category for something like this. And this isn't the only time this kind of reaction came about when Jesus taught. Um, In other words, it wasn't just that Jesus was having a really good teaching day. They were like, wow, what a sermon. But then other days, he's kind of off. No. This is just how Jesus is. This is the authority that he teaches with. If you remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. Same exact word used in Mark. Astonished at his teaching, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That's Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when we see that word authority, it means he was teaching like he had the right to command. He was teaching like he was speaking for God instead of just about God. I have a question for all of us this morning. Do we know anything about what these people experienced in the synagogue in Capernaum? They heard Jesus speaking with authority. Don't we hear the very same teaching in the words of Holy Scripture? Do you see what I'm getting at? We have this beauty and this power and this authority right under our noses. We've had it there for so long that maybe we've, maybe we've lost a little bit of appreciation for what it is and what it says, and we begin to fall into some kind of thinking that this is just humdrum or boring. But what is it that we have in our possession 
We have Jesus' words. We have God's words. We have Holy Spirit-inspired words. We have words in the Scriptures that have infinite authority because they're from the mind of God. And we get to study and read it every Lord's Day. That is anything but humdrum or dry or boring. We can, uh, we can easily become like the little child who grew up in a house made of diamonds. After a while, they just, just begin to look ordinary, right? But in reality, the treasure, the diamonds, they didn't change. Still massively valuable. What's changed is the ones who are viewing it. They kind of become blinded to its beauty. They, they lost their first love we might say, in the words of Revelation 2, 4. There is beauty and power and authority and glory in God's Word. And what a privilege it is for us to have such a Word, is it not? If just we just had the ears and the eyes and the mind to see it like that all the time. They heard Jesus preach one sermon, and they were absolutely astonished. We have a complete Bible. We've got many sermons from Jesus. And every word of Scripture has, given, has been given the seal of approval by Jesus. It has been inspired by the Spirit of God who is in perfect union with God the Father and God the Son. So, oh, may, we, may God give us the proper awe before Him and His Word. Amen? I didn't hear very much just then. Oh, man. Now, not only did Jesus' teaching carry authority with it, but his actions carried authority. So first he rids this man of this demon, this poor man. Maybe people didn't even know he was being oppressed by a demon until the outburst happened. I don't know. We, we don't know all the details. But as he sat there listening to Jesus speak with God's authority, it was like the demon was just getting riled up. And he cries out with his loud voice, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And he adds, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And whether you're of the opinion that the demon was mocking Jesus, or maybe if you believe he's actually truly acknowledging who Jesus is, the authority that Jesus has over this demon is unmistakable. Jesus basically tells him to shut up. I don't want to hear from you anymore. The word means muzzle it and come out of him. And this evil spirit shrieks and convulses this poor man one last time 
and then leaves him. The demon didn't want to obey Jesus per se, but guess what? He had to. Why? Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. He could cast out demons just with a word, and they had to obey. With a nod, with a flick of his finger, however he wanted to do it, Jesus has authority over all things. And last week, if you remember, we looked at Jesus' message that he was preaching as he was traveling around. And one thing he was saying, if you remember, was that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the king is here. And when Jesus comes to town, all lesser authorities obey. The powers of darkness like this demon, no match for the sovereign king. They know who he is, and they know they don't stand a chance against the Lord. Their doom is sure, as Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn. They don't want to obey him, but they do. They're on God's leash, so to speak. This is a display of great authority, and his actions backed up his words. His words carried great authority, but his actions proved that it wasn't just talk. He was the legitimate king of the universe. Not only does he cast out the demon, he heals Simon's mother-in-law with just a touch. Verse 31 says he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left. And then in verse 34 it says he went on to heal many people that evening. The kingdom is here. The one with supreme authority has burst on the scene and he clearly has the power to change people's lives, to say the least. Can you imagine yourself being one of those sick people in Capernaum? Imagine you had cancer at that time. And you were one of these many people who came to be healed. You didn't even know what you had. You didn't even know what cancer was. All you knew was something is severely wrong with me. I'm dying and no one can help me. But when you came to this man, he touched you or he spoke a word over you. Instantly healed 100%. That would be a defining moment in your life, wouldn't it? Imagine that. That moment would not be easily forgotten. People would be saying and asking you for the rest of your life, tell us what happened again. And you wouldn't sigh and say, okay. You would love to tell about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and what he did for you. He saved you. He healed you. He gave you your life back. And brothers and sisters, what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 1 is what he's doing in 2022 in Jackson. He's healing people. He's saving people. He's he's giving them their lives back. And I'm not talking about physical healing primarily, although I believe he's doing that as well when he's pleased to do so. But primarily, he's healing people of the terminal, deadly uh, disease that we all have called sin 
There's no human cure. There's only one that can help us. It's him. And Jesus overcomes the evil one that has blinded us for so long. And he opens our eyes finally to the glories of Christ and the goodness and mercy and grace of God. And when we see him, we just fall to our knees and worship. No less healed than any of these people who came to him that day in Capernaum. Matter of fact, I would say the healing that he's given us is even more lasting because even these who Jesus physically healed that day eventually died of something. Maybe they died of old age or maybe they got another sickness that these broken bodies come down with, right? But salvation, he heals us in a more permanent manner. We will never die again in any meaningful sense. Our bodies might die, but death is going to be nothing more than a door that leads to pleasures evermore with God. What a, what a gift. What a Savior. Amen? So, how do you view Jesus this morning? It's my question. One of my questions to you. Have you come to Him for the cure? Because you won't find the cure for what you've got anywhere else. Come to Him and Him alone. How about this question? How do you view the Scriptures? Do you view them as the very words of Christ? Do you read His teaching with the same awe and amazement as these people did in the synagogue that day? In other words, do you hear Him and read Him as having, as, as teaching with authority? Do you hear the preaching of God's word, weak though it may be through some frail and fallible human instrument? Do you have a heart to hear God's truth with astonishment and awe and reverence? Do you see its glory, in other words? The Savior has authority over evil spirits, sickness, disease, and guess what? He has authority over you and over me. And he's commanding you and I to bow to his authority. And the command is not a harsh command of a tyrant, but it's a loving command of a good and kind king who says, when you come to me, when you bow to me, you get everything. I'll forgive you of your sins. I'll give you a home in heaven with me. Come to me and find eternal rest. Oh, what kind of rest do you think that demon-oppressed man got that night? His mind was clear. His body was relaxed. His heart was no doubt filled with gratitude for what Jesus has done for him. What about the others? What kind of rest do you think those formerly sick people got that night? Before Jesus, they had little to no hope, but when they came to him, he gave them life. He healed them. This is the power and authority of Jesus. Let me just leave you with this as I close. May we never 
think of the word of God as anything less than it really is. It is the authoritative teaching of Father, Son, and Spirit directly to us. And there is nothing humdrum or boring about that. The same Jesus who astonished people in the synagogue in Capernaum speaks to us. And he speaks even more completely than he did to them. So may God help us value his word as we should. Every time we get to open God's word, it's an absolute privilege and joy because it's there that we encounter the authoritative Savior sent to rescue people like us. May we view it that way. Amen. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Father, give us a holy awe as we encounter your word, Lord. May we not treat it, Lord, as something ordinary or routine. Your revelation, Lord, is to be cherished by your people. Make us lovers of the word of God. May it excite us. May we long for the opportunity to read it and study it and hear it taught, hear it preached. May our hearts burst, Lord, with joy and praise when we sing songs that have scriptural truth in them. May we meditate, Lord, on your word day and night. And help us just to say with these people in Capernaum, this teaching is one with authority. Thank you for freeing needy people from the clutches of Satan. Thank you for healing sick people of their worst disease, the disease of sin. Work your sovereign will in us, Lord. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.